Okay, so Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. And these verses have sometimes been referred to as the scariest verses in the Bible. Have you ever heard anyone referring to these verses as the scariest verses in the Bible? So let's have a look at them one more time. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. Possibly the scariest verses in the Bible, according to some. Let us hear God's word. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. So some people have referred to these verses as the scariest verses in the Bible. Now I believe what is described for us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, has happened in this land last week to two people, at least two people. Some of you know the pastor and preacher and author, uh, Dai Hanke in Cardiff. This is what he wrote on social media last week. On the 3rd of December, 2019. So what was that, Tuesday? This is what Dai Hanke wrote on social media last Tuesday. Today, I have heard of two pastors who have wrecked their faith and destroy their marriages. I know both men personally and have enjoyed the benefit from their friendship over many years. I'm devastated and scared. Please pray for me and my family and pray for your pastors and their families. And I think I know one of the men he's referring to know him really, really well. This is scary. It's not a game, is it? I know he says at the end, please pray for me and my family and pray for your pastors and their families. But we need to pray for every believer, don't we? That we will be held fast. That we will be true believers. So when we hear stories like that, true stories like that, that happened on Tuesday... When we hear stories like that, and when we read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, it causes us to ask the question, doesn't it? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian become a non-Christian? Can we lose our salvation? Where do we go to find the answer? The Bible. 
What does Jesus say in John chapter 10? This is 27 to 29. Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Aren't they wonderful promises? Do you know, we could be here all night, but I am going to look at a few. What about Romans chapter 8? Verse 35 and then verses 38 and 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Then verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wonderful. And what about Ephesians chapter 1 and the second half of verse 13 and verse 14? When you believed, local church at Ephesus, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. And then last one then, 1 Peter chapter 1, this is 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. So let's ask the question again. Can a true believer, can a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ lose their salvation from what we've just read? Some of you don't look too sure. <laughs> no, isn't it? Praise God. A true believer, a sheep of Jesus Christ will never be lost. No one can snatch us out of the hand of God the Son and God the Father. Isn't that wonderful? But then the question comes, what on earth happened to those two pastors last Tuesday? What on earth happened to them? And what about this category of people who are described for us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 gives us the answer. What do we read there? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. This is the answer to what happened to those two pastors last week. And this is the answer to help us to understand who this category of people described for us in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8 are. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says this. They went out from us 
They went out from the church. They left the church. They left the faith. They went out from us. But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So those two pastors who renounced their faith last week weren't true believers in the first time. They weren't true believers in the first place. That's the only way to understand that. And this category of people described for us in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8, are not true believers. But they sound like great Christians, don't they? When you read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, you think, these sound like great Christians. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. What do we read there? Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. And they've tasted the powers of the coming age. They've got to be Christians, right? Those people described for us in verses 4 and 5 of Hebrews chapter 6. Well, these are just great experiences, aren't they? What's described for us there in Hebrews 6 verses 4 and 5 are just great experiences. There's no salvation language there, is there? No salvation language like saved or born again or justified or made righteous, redeemed, forgiven, adopted, sanctified. Can you think of any more? The list could go on, couldn't it? None of that salvation language is there. They're not truly saved people. They've had five great experiences that doesn't make someone a Christian. Those five great experiences doesn't make someone a Christian. So what exactly are those experiences, those five great experiences? Should we go through them quickly? What about the first one? In verse 4, enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? Well, it means to have the lights sort of switched on, doesn't it? Enlightened means to have the lights being switched on so you can now see something clearly. Do you know what? There are many people who've had the sort of lights switched on or feel as if they've had the lights switched on and they feel as if they've clearly seen who Jesus is, they've clearly seen why Jesus came, and they've clearly seen what it means to follow Jesus. And you might be thinking, that should be enough. Someone who's seen who Jesus is, someone who's seen why Jesus came, someone who's seen what it means to follow Jesus, they've got to be a Christian, haven't they? No, that's not enough. Head knowledge is not enough, is it? What do we read in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32? 
To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I have to be careful what I say here, but believing isn't enough. You've got to follow Jesus and follow his commands. Jesus has got to be Lord of our life. Merely just believing information about Jesus isn't enough. What do we read in James chapter 2, verses 17 to 19? Faith by itself, believing by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Believing isn't enough. Being enlightened isn't enough. The commentator John Brown says that the early church fathers called baptism enlightenment. I'm not too sure about that, but they would have referred to someone being baptized as, oh, they've been enlightened. Well, that might be true. Maybe that's what it means as well. But I tell you, there are people, I know that there are people in hell tonight who have been baptized. There are people in hell tonight who heard the gospel, understood the gospel intellectually, gave a testimony publicly, were baptized, but they're in hell tonight because they didn't truly repent. They didn't truly trust in Jesus. They didn't truly make Jesus Lord of their life. What about the second experience then? Tasted the heavenly gift. Now, tasted the heavenly gift, John Brown says again, could mean eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. Are there people in hell tonight who have eaten of the bread and drink and drunk of the cup in an evangelical church? I'm not talking about a Roman Catholic mass, which is a blasphemy, but people who have actually been to evangelical churches and who have eaten of the bread, drink, drunk of the cup. There are people who have taken communion who are in hell tonight because that doesn't save you. But I think the key word there in verse 4 is tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted. Now, tasting something doesn't do you any good, does it? Now, we had steak pie for lunch. And um, to put it politely, the steak was... I don't know, what's the word, Mark? <laughs> it, it wasn't tender. It wasn't tender. <laughs> Yeah. And my little boy Nathan, he would chew on it, chew on it, and he would spit it out then. They can't eat it, it's too tough. Yeah, it's too hard. Yeah, and Lydia was saying the same as well. But steak is good for you, it makes you tall apparently, or is that just a myth? But if you want to be strong, if you want to grow, isn't it? You've got to actually take it in. It's not enough just to chew over food, it's got to go in you, isn't it? Tasting something, merely tasting something, does you no good. It's got to go in us. 
We've got to digest it, haven't we? So what is the heavenly gift? Tasted the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? Well, who does the Apostle Paul describe as the indescribable gift? Jesus, yeah, Jesus. And what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the heavenly gift, the one who's come down from heaven to earth, is Jesus. And here's a question. Have you just tasted Jesus, or is he really part of you? Some people have tasted the goodness of Jesus, but they haven't really taken him in. He's not really part of them. So I mean this reverently, but metaphorically, Jesus is still in some people's mouths. They're sort of just sort of chewing him over, so to speak. And they can spit him out at any moment because they haven't really taken him in. They haven't sort of really digested him. What a sad place to be. Oh, I, I like a little bit of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he tastes good. Ah, but I'm not going to take him in. I'm not going to allow him to do me any good, lasting good. Such a sad position. But then what about the third experience? What do we read there? Shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't say sealed by the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit or indwelt by the Holy Spirit or filled by the Holy Spirit. It just sort of says shared, isn't it? Shared in the Holy Spirit or partook in the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is very often connected with spiritual gifts, isn't he? And my friends, there are a lot of people in hell tonight who looked like spiritually gifted people. Maybe they were gifted preachers. Maybe they performed signs, wonders, and miracles. We know that, don't we? Jesus says so in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. What do we read there in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy or did we not preach in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly. I, I never knew you away from me. You evildoer. And I wonder if that's what the Lord has said to these two pastors who've abandoned the faith this week. We didn't really know each other, did we? You just knew about me, and you spoke about me to other people. It was all just a game, wasn't it? It wasn't genuine. We didn't really know each other. It wasn't that intimate, loving, deep relationship there. And what about Judas? Do you think Judas performed miracles? I think he'd have stuck out like a sore thumb, wouldn't he, if he didn't perform any miracles or if he didn't preach. Judas is in hell tonight. So just being spiritually gifted 
or looking as if you're spiritually gifted means that you're genuinely saved. But what about the fourth experience then? Tasted the goodness of the word of God. Again, it's got that word taste, isn't it? How many people sort of love just tasting the Bible? They're sort of sermon tasters, isn't it? It's not enough just to taste the word of God. You've got to eat it, haven't you? It's got to go into you. You've got to digest it. The word of God has to become part of you. The prophets in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, I'm thinking of especially, is it chapter 15? He talks about sort of eating the word of God. The word of God has got to do us good. We can't just taste it. And my friends, no doubt there are people in hell tonight who have read the whole Bible. There are people in hell tonight who probably know the Bible much, much better than I do. There are people in hell tonight who have heard hundreds of sermons, thousands of evangelical sermons, but they just tasted it. They said, oh, I like a little bit of that. I like being tickled by the word of God, isn't it? And then they leave and it does nothing to them. And then what about the last experience, the fifth experience? Tasted the powers of the coming age. Now, what is the coming age? Well, I believe that is the new creation where believers will spend eternity after Judgment Day. After Judgment Day, believers will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with our new resurrection bodies and the triune God will be physically present. Isn't that wonderful? And what is the new creation like? What is the new heavens and new earth like? Well, it's going to be physical, but it's a place of no mores. I love that description of the new heavens, new earth, a place of no mores. No more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. It'll be a place of perfect love, joy, and peace, won't it? And do you know what? The church has little tastes of the coming age now don't we? Have you ever sort of felt, oh, it just felt like heaven in church today? Maybe someone was healed in the church, or we heard an answer to prayer of someone being healed. Or we knew incredible peace and joy, a real love. People often say that, now. I felt a lot of love coming amongst God's people today. It's just a little taste of what's to come, isn't it? The coming age. A little taste of the coming age. A real sense of God's presence. Maybe seeing some healing. And great times of joy and peace. Well, someone can have all those experiences, can't they? Someone can have all of those experiences. Someone can be enlightened. Someone can taste the heavenly gift. Someone can share in the Holy Spirit. Someone can taste the goodness of the word of God. Someone can taste the powers of the coming age. But still be lost. Still be lost. You can have all of those five experiences and end up in hell. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Now, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And whoever comes to Jesus, he will never drive them away. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there seems to be a category of people, and it's impossible for them to repent. Who are these people? It's people who have heard the gospel, understood the gospel, probably been baptized, probably taken communion, probably seem to be spiritually gifted, maybe a preacher, probably read the Bible, probably saw God work in power. And when they fall away, I think the Bible makes it very clear it's impossible for them to repent. But fall away is a bit weak. Really, it is apostatize. They apostatize. That's not just sort of falling away into a little bit of sin or something. Because we fall into sin every day, don't we? Every day we sin. No, he's not just talking about sort of sinning here. He's talking about renouncing the faith. Someone actually saying, I've had all these experiences. I've heard the gospel. I understood the gospel. I tasted a little bit of Jesus. You know, I shared in the Holy Spirit. I tasted the word of God. I've seen incredible things that God has done in the church. But now I'm an atheist. I renounce my faith. Jesus is not the Christ. He's not the Son of God. Jesus didn't die for sinners on the cross. He didn't rise again from the dead. The Bible is not true. When someone comes to that place, then they show that they've never truly repented in the first place. That Jesus was never really Lord of their life. All they did was just taste Jesus. And it's impossible for people like that to change their mind. I believe the passage is teaching us it's impossible for people like that to change their mind. Now, I don't know about you, but you know of any apostates who have changed their mind. I haven't come across, maybe, tell me later maybe, but I've never come across an apostate who has sort of changed his mind. Now, we all know backsliders, don't we, who've been restored. And that is wonderful, isn't it? There's nothing... Um, I knew of a, a backslider who got married yesterday in Swansea. He used to be in our youth group, didn't he? So he was adopted by one of the elders of the church, and he was wild, wasn't he? He was so, so wild. And he got saved, he became a Christian, and then he backslid. He didn't sort of renounce his faith. He was just living in sin. He started living with a girl, a girlfriend. She got pregnant. She got converted then. And then he came back to Jesus. And yesterday they got married. Isn't that, That's what church is about, isn't it? It's like, yeah, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. So we've seen backsliders being restored but I've never heard of an apostate being restored. I've never heard a testimony, maybe a bit like this. In my sort of 20s or 30s, I was enlightened. I heard the gospel, understood the gospel, got baptized. 
I tasted Jesus. I enjoyed Jesus. I had communion. I shared in the Holy Spirit. I felt as if I was gifted, spiritually gifted. I tasted the Word of God. I enjoyed reading the Bible. I enjoyed hearing the Bible, being taught. I experienced the powers of the age to come. I saw God at work in power in the church. But then I stopped believing it all. I renounced my faith. I became an atheist. But now I've changed my mind again. <laughs> and now I'm an evangelical again. You don't hear a testimony like that, do you? Someone who goes from being a non-Christian to a professing Christian and then to an antichrist, because that's what 1 John chapter 2 is basically calling those people. It's an antichrist. And then becoming a Christian. It doesn't seem to happen, does it? Non-Christian, Christian, Antichrist, then Christian again. It is non-Christian, professing Christian, Antichrist, and then it's lost, isn't it? It's hell-bound then. When a professing Christian renounces their faith and says that Jesus isn't the Messiah, the Son of God, they're doing the second half of verse 6. Which is very, very serious, isn't it? So when a professing Christian renounces their faith and says, Jesus is not God. He's not the Messiah. They're doing chapter 6, verse 6b, aren't they? The second half of verse 6. What do we read there? To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was crucified naked, wasn't he? Completely naked. We don't think of that because all the images we have of Jesus, he's got this little sort of loincloth thing. But Jesus was crucified naked, hanging up high on a cross in public. And he was branded a criminal, the worst of the criminals. Crucifixion was a very hum humiliating and disgraceful death, wasn't it? It was the most humiliating and disgraceful death anyone could experience. It was the cursed death, wasn't it? Well, humanly speaking, why was Jesus crucified? Humanly speaking, why was Jesus crucified? What crime did he commit? Well, he was labelled as a blasphemer, wasn't he? He was crucified because people thought he was a blasphemer. Because Jesus made it very clearly known to people that he was the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was crucified because he was claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So when a professing Christian decides one day that Jesus is not the Christ, that he's not the Son of God... They're basically calling Jesus a blasphemer and they're saying that Jesus deserved to be publicly and disgracefully crucified. Which is so serious, isn't it? And a professing Christian says, ah, Jesus, he's not God. He's not the Messiah. Oof. So what are you calling him? Are you calling him a blasphemer? If you'd have been around 2,000 years ago, you'd have grabbed the nails and the hammer and you'd have driven them in. And you said, he is a blasphemer. 
He deserves to be up on that cross. It is so, so scary when this happens to people. What does Peter say? The Apostle Peter says it would have been better if these people would never have heard the gospel in the first place. What do we read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22? Again, heavy verses, aren't they? If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a soul that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Strong verses, aren't they? So then the question is, why? Why? Why do professing Christians apostatize? Why do people commit apostasy? You know, why did what happened to those two pastors last week happen? Well, the answer is in verses 7 and 8, isn't it? Hebrews 6, verses 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. What do those verses remind us of? Do they remind you of a parable? A parable that Jesus told you? Yeah, the parable of the sower, isn't it? I think it would be really helpful to turn to that. Mark chapter 4, and we'll read verses... 14 to to 20. What do we read there? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And then verse 18. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 60, sorry, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Now, I think I know one of the men that Dai was referring to, and I know the situation a little bit. And it seems as if what happened to this pastor is verse 18. He abandoned the faith because something really awful happened in his church and he just couldn't cope. He must have been 
worried sick about something dreadful that happened in his church. And he said, I, I can't take any more of this. I'm renouncing Christ. I'm leaving my wife and children. I'm leaving the church. He is verse 18. Sadly, he was thorny ground. He was thorny ground, which is a tragedy. But praise God, we don't have to be one of those people described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. We don't have to just taste Jesus and his words, do we? No, we can feast on Jesus and his word. And we don't have to just sort of share in the Holy Spirit. We can be sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who guarantees our redemption. But it's so important that we make sure that we are Mark chapter 4 verse 20. That we are good soil. Every day we have to humble ourselves before God and say, God, change my heart. Turn my heart over. I want to be a true believer. When I receive your word, I want to produce fruit. I don't want to be the hard path. I don't want to be the rocky ground. And I certainly don't want to be the thorny ground. This is the word of God. But praise God, if we are indeed true believers, if Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, if we have truly repented and trusted in Jesus, the sinless Savior, crucified Savior, our sin-bearing Savior, our risen Savior, our ascended Savior, we are safe. Isn't that wonderful? Safe in his arms. 